Oh, my name is Val, and I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Hello, women. How are you? Beautiful. I'll tell you how you are. You're just beautiful. My name is Val, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic because the steps and the traditions and the concepts of this program work in my life on a daily basis. I haven't had a drink since November the 2nd, 1972. Yes. Thank you. You know what that means? That means I never had to and I never have to taste blue none. It wasn't around <laughs> 16 years ago. And something else, there's a new industry here in Texas, and it's called the Texas wine industry. And I'm way too snobbish to order Chateau Bubba. <laughs> Just a few reasons to be grateful, that's all. <laughs> You know, they, AAs lie. They lie. Sponsors lie. Mine did. She said, well, there's no big deal. There's no big deals in AA. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I am an active member of the Alano Group, which meets over on Maple Avenue. You're welcome to come. We're the closest group to downtown Dallas. We get a lot of people staying in hotels, a lot of, of transients, a lot of wonderful people. We, are, we get, just get plain old vanilla drunks. We love them all. I'm also a member of a women's group, it's a women's step study group, it's called uh, the Thursday night group that meets on Wednesday night. Um, well, we had, we, we have been together a long time and we have gone, you know, with birthing and then kids playing football and then, you know, we have to swap it back and forth. We've gone through, through sickness and dying. As a matter of fact, they sent me a gorgeous plant today out of our sick and dying <laughs> kitty. <laughs> it's nice to get them while you're still alive. <laughs> it really is. You know, AA tells you to tell what you were like and what happened and and what you're like now. And I really, really, really wanted my story to be Debbie Does Dallas. <laughs> but it's more Darth Day Does AA. <laughs> I absolutely didn't do anything except drink, wreck a few lives, uh, ruin a few relationships, break a few hearts, just, you know, just the normal stuff that 
people do when they drink like we drank. You know, I really am I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed tonight. There are three women, my two daughters and my mother, who are not in this room and they don't need to be. But the rest of the significant women in my life are in this room tonight. That's a hell of a deal, folks. That really is. There are women in this room that have trusted me to be the godmother of their children. There are women in this room, there's a woman in this room whose husband cut my baby's toenail. I guess he thought I would cut their toes off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say in the book that we would like to drink like other people and drink with impunity. There are more impunities here than... <laughs> All my impunities are here. I can't lie. <laughs> I can't lie. No, my mother and my two daughters have no reason to be here today. And that's okay. You know, it's, it's here if they ever need it. And I'm so grateful to the women who were here before me. I don't know whether the women who are not from Dallas realize it or not, but our AA came to Dallas through a woman named Esther. Esther came to Dallas by way of Houston, by way of New Orleans. Esther's story is in the big book. It's called The Flower of the South. That's who brought A.A. to Dallas. It was a woman. We celebrate that every year now. Well, we have for the last two years here in Dallas. We celebrate A.A.'s birthday in Dallas being brought by Esther. That's a big deal. We are, we are loved, we are lucky women. We are beloved women. We are cherished women. We really are. I am, and I know each and every one of you are, because of what? Because of what you're doing, that's all. Because of your recovery. Not because of the way you drank, but because of the way you're recovering. Because of our miracle. That's the miracle of AA. That's what we share. Our experience, strength, and hope with each other. You know, there's a line from from uh, The Jew of Malta by Christopher Marlowe, and someone tells the, you know, the protagonist, he says, oh, but you have committed a crime. You have committed fornication. And he says, oh, yes. But that was a long time ago, and in another country. And besides, the winch is dead. Some of our wenches live on. There's an awful lot of wench still left in me, I can say that. Uh, I love it when you say, and, and you all are going to hear native Texans. Uh, last night she's from the Bronx. Tonight I sound like I'm from the Bronx. I'm from New Orleans. My God. My mama. Talked to my mama. This is this is about. Oh, I was about nine years sober, and uh, she called one night. She says, "Where you going, darling?" 
on another, and I said, "Going to meeting, mother. Another meeting, even though you're cured, my darling." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I am." And she said, "That's good, darling. The poor unfortunates need you." <laughs> See, my mama doesn't think I look like an alcoholic. <laughs> Oh, I wish I did look like an alcoholic. My God, stand up here in a Chanel suit. Hot dog. How about that? <laughs> God, if we didn't have a good time, huh? What the heck would happen to us? But I do have to tell what I'm like. These are not, these are just little bitty notes that, that, I, because I don't want to, I don't want to get too far I'll face because I am nervous. I, you know, I, I would rather be in Blytheville at the coon dinner. <laughs> there were only 300 people there. <laughs> um, I was born, according to my children, about 116 years ago. I was born in a city that never, that never forgets. You know, I was born. Uh, in a city where the good times roll, the good times roll. I never knew, I never had any concept that drinking was a sin or an immoral thing. I mean, you know, how could bread and water be immoral? And drinking is as important to New Orleans as French bread. It seemed to me, it seemed to me that way. I was born into a religious family. You know, um, AA says, you know, uh, we put these principles uh, before personalities, but AA did not give me these principles. I did not come to you just uh, ragtag, never having known any principles of morality or honesty or decency. I had those principles. I also had the disease of alcoholism. And I couldn't live by those principles. And you see, that's what makes for me, as far as I'm concerned, an alcoholic, the conflict. If, if I didn't have any moral principles, what difference would it make? What difference would it make if I got drunk and disturbed everyone else's serenity? We had a friend. We had a friend in New Orleans, and this was years ago when uh, tranquilizers were first coming out. And he was a doctor, and um, he was crazy. And uh, they finally everybody calmed down, you know, uh, around him. And he said, "Well, he had gone to the doctor, and he had gotten these wonderful things, Milltown." And we said, oh, Chuck, are you taking him? He says, no, but Mary, my wife, my mother-in-law, and everybody else is. And, you know, so it just worked out just fine. And uh, sort of like when I, uh, when I had my first child and I didn't want it to be vaccinated uh, because I was going through this deal where I did not want live viruses in my, you know, I was going through my medical career. Don't we all go through that? And uh, the doctor said, Mrs. Sterhan, it is not important that your child be vaccinated. It is just important that you guarantee she's never around anyone who 
hasn't been vaccinated. And that's kind of like I am about my AA now, you know. It really isn't important that I don't drink to many people. I just like being around people who don't drink and who don't drink because of the reasons that I don't drink because I have a recovery program. I have the steps, I have the traditions. These are, you know, I don't say that I'm sober by the grace of God. I know I'm sober by the grace of God, but let me tell you something else. The grace of God was out there for me. I am sober because through the steps and the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could get in touch with that God. He was always there. The God of my understanding loved me out there, bombed, raising hell. Of course he did. But you know what? I got that God from you all because of the line in the big book in the italics when Ebby said to Bill, why don't you choose the God of your own understanding? What liberation. I was raised in a religion. Um, very, very strict. As a matter of fact, I wanted to be a saint. Um, I, I really could see no reason why not. The religion offered it. I'm alcoholic enough and greedy enough to want it all. Um, I was a very pious child. I was the victim of a divorce back in the 40s. And that caused my alcoholism, you know. It sure did, until I got to AA, that caused my alcoholism. I was a very devout, um, I practiced my religion very, very devoutly. I was raised in an all-women's uh, convent school, uh, grammar school, high school, and college. I had two daughters when I had a dog. I had a female dog. Uh, and I love men. I love men. I've been a very, very lucky, lucky woman with men in my life. All two of them. Uh, I line up. <laughs> Case of arrested development, but that's okay. Um, as a youngster, my earliest memories are of not wanting to be, of, of being in conflict with my environment, no matter where I was, I felt less than and acted more than. The only thing bigger than my ego was my inferiority complex. That's the only thing that was bigger. I can remember uh, a nun telling me once in sixth grade, Diane, this is Mary Aloysius, God rest your soul, did you ever think your elocution classes would get me here, baby? <laughs> she says, Diane, you never have to tell anyone if you're well-educated or well-read or well-traveled. They will know it. And I thought, yeah, maybe they won't. And so I just kept telling them. <laughs> and I'll never forget once when I corrected my mother, I corrected her grammar. You don't do that to Irene and get away with it. Um, 
and after I got up off the floor, she said, uh, you know it's a damn shame, Valan, that you're so smart and the rest of the world so stupid. And I thought, she's got it. She finally figured that out. I have a sister. I have a very loving sister. My mother was my mother was and is a good mother. I love my mother. Now that's a basic thing that I can say today. I I couldn't say that sixteen years ago. Hell I could not. I didn't know what the word love meant. I was raised in an era or a time when uh you know, a woman's deal was to get married, period. Get a husband. Get a good husband if you could, but get a husband. Uh, a good husband was, in my family, a rich Catholic. I started college at the age of 16 in an all-women's college. Now, how this was supposed to help me get a husband, maybe some of you haven't figured out. But let me tell you, the boys know where the girls are. And when you're all congregated in one place, it's much easier for them to find you. Of course, a few perverts hang around and people in raincoats and things like that. But, um, you know, that's just life on life's term, as they're telling us. Uh, I... I don't, I don't know, and I really can't remember whether I really loved God. I loved the religion. I loved the religiosity of it. I liked the bells and the smells, you know. I loved, uh, I liked altar boys. Uh, I liked a few priests. Uh, I was, God, I was alcoholic, you know, because I was such a contrast. My kids got out my yearbook when my older daughter was in high school, and she, they were having an old-timey party, a party from the olden days, and she wanted to see how we dressed in the 50s. And she saw my picture in the yearbook. And it said, Valan April, brainchild of 53. Now, that's 1953, folks. And the brainchild of 53, dry wit, successful in anything she undertakes. Now, little did they know that 19 years later, I'd be almost wet-brained and witless and a complete failure in the most important thing in my life, drinking drinking successfully, drinking like a lady. Oh, God, I wanted to do that. I'm from a blue-collar family. My mom was a hard-working lady. Uh, we weren't sophisticated in our family. Uh, my mother didn't drink. She had narcolepsy. She didn't have to. She could go to sleep anytime she wanted to. And withdraw from reality anytime she wanted to. Uh, so there wasn't the cocktail party going on in our family. 
But there again, it's just like being around people who are inoculated. We were around people who gave cocktail parties and uh, lived the sophisticated life. From, from early on, I mean, even in the convent, we were given wine with our meals. We, you know, we put sugar and water in it. Uh, when we didn't feel good and had a stomachache, we got paragaric. I can remember getting paragaric so young that I called it paragaric. And uh, so, you know, we fought through prayer and medication to keep us to keep us in tow. But I mean, as I say, alcohol was not a forbidden thing, and so I, I don't have that problem with it. And I didn't have that problem with it. As I told you, I never felt at ease with with any place that I was. I felt that. Um, since I was the child of a divorce, and this religion did not recognize divorce, and for some reason I heard, they may not have said, but what happened to divorced people and what kind of life, you know, what kind of hell was already for them, and uh, I just could not put those two concepts together with this lady that went out and worked for these two kids and to keep us in the school. I couldn't, I couldn't marry it. I was confused, folks. I was confused. But I still was a pious, pious person and on my way to sainthood. In this quest, um, I did start college, as I say, at 16 years old. And so I was always going out with older people and uh, fraternity parties and the keg parties and things like that. I do not remember ever, ever, ever saying we're going to have a party or we're going to have a beer party or something like that. We're going to have a beer bus. We're going to get bombed. We're going to the KA house tonight and get south. I mean, that was the way. I, can you think of any other way to drink? I mean, I really can't. I, I can remember ordering things like VO uh, and 7-Up. Now, that's sick drinking. But it, it sounded ladylike, and it was sweet, and it helped the alcohol go down. Uh, but I loved beer. Oh, I loved beer, and I loved beer parties. And we went to Pontchartrain Lake a lot and had beer parties. And uh, I couldn't swim. My mother still holds the record for swimming the Mississippi at its mouth at the age of 16. I can't swim a stroke. Tell you anything? Um, a little defiant, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I'll show her. I'll drown. Uh, but we'd go, and I was in charge of, of the Wallace and the beer, and nothing ever happened to the Wallace. Uh, I, uh, at the age of 19, I met, oh God, I met God's will for me. Six feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. It'd have been God's will for any of you if you'd seen it. 
was beautiful. I'm so glad he was, too, because I have two beautiful daughters. I got that out of him, I'll say that. <laughs> it wasn't easy, either. <laughs> I was, uh... I was a 19-year-old virgin. Now, that's something like a Fort Worth debutante. They're hard to find. <laughs> I'm sorry, Fort Worth. That's in a nasty book I read, and I just couldn't resist it. And I don't want to be mean, but I think that's funny. Actually, that's the definition of a social drinker. <laughs> Work they've done. Uh, anyway, I met him when I was 19 years old, and I was a junior in college. And I had a, a, a scholarship at law school had I finished my undergraduate work. You see, what I was talking about, and see, I went back to when my kids were looking in, in my yearbook. And they saw, you know, it said, most intellectual. And everybody else in the yearbook that had been the most this or the most that were in their uniforms. I was in a black velvet backless dress reading a comic book. <laughs> a little defiant. Um, and yet they came to the honor graduate pictures and they knew I had earned a scholarship to college. But my picture was not in with the honor graduate. And my older daughter said, well, why not, Mom? And I said, well, you see, there are two sides to the report card. And one side was my grades, which were all A's. And the other side were my personal, uh, a personality, whatever, behavioral problems is what they were. Waste time, annoys others, disrespectful to adults. Um, does not show up when she's supposed to. Undependable. Undependable. Uh, you know, those sort of things. I got D's in those, and they didn't permit you to be with the honor graduate. I showed them. <laughs> I'm going to be president of AA. Oh. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to be president of AA. I'll get on to my I'll get on to my story. I did find this wonderful, beautiful man and and he I fell head over heels in love and he fell head over heels in lust and that wasn't gonna work out on the way to sainthood. You and I both know that. And so I ran. Any of you do that. I just ran. I got an opportunity to fly for an airline and he encouraged me. He said things like they won't hire you. You have an ugly New Orleans accent. Uh, so I lied. They were hiring at 20, and I was 19 years old, and I lied on my application and told them I was 20. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> AA has taught me not to lie anymore. Uh, so, and I got hired. And I went to Kansas City. I was based in Kansas City. And as I was finishing up, you know, the four-week course, it was like the day before graduation, I guess who was at the top of the class, and they called me in and they said, we've gotten your transcripts from school and there's some discrepancy 
in your age. You said you were 20 and you're not. You're 19 years old. I said, let me tell you what it's like. Let, let me tell you. My mama was divorced. She had this great religious family that would not help her support these children. And so she had to put us into boarding school, but we were too young for the boarding school to take us, so she had to lie. And I have never really known my true age till now. Thank you. And, and this woman said, you poor dear, you poor, poor dear. And it will be just a few months and you'll be 20 years old. And, you know, why not? Go ahead. Well, and, and since you're first in your class, I mean, come on. So they let me fly. Now, being the youngest in my class, I, I moved into a house with six women. Being the youngest in my class put me in the lowest in seniority. And so we were all on reserve, and the, the five of them had all flown out and come back and flown out and come back before I got my first crew call for my very first trip. And it was early in the morning, and the girls had been partying as they come in. And I wasn't. I was sleeping and waiting for my crew call like I should. Every once in a while, I would slip in, and there was a tag in the living room and, you know, maybe have a little sip of beer. But I was really serious about this. This was going to be a fun job. My God, I hadn't been any further than Biloxi. And so, uh, but there's an Air Force base in Biloxi. Uh, and so I... Uh, Went out, I got up, I got my crew call, and they all helped me get dressed. And I loved, I worked for TWA, Teeny Weeny Airlines, tried walking a while, tired women's association, we heard it all. But I tell you, the nicest thing about TWA is that then, back in 19-aught, whatever, they had built-in hostesses. Your uniforms had a chest in them. They were wonderful. I mean, they were the best-looking things you ever saw. Because you look like wax, but other than that, you look like well-built wax. And, you know, I weighed 104 pounds, and so I needed to be a well-built wax. And so they got me all dressed up in my uniform, and they said, here, take this orange juice. And they fixed me a pretty big glass of orange juice. And I had been sipping on beer. Great big glass of orange juice loaded with that see-through nectar called vodka. Oh, God. And in the back of the cab, I sit. This was at 7 o'clock in the morning. I got in as the only, it was a, it's a small plane called a Martin 404. And it has, it held about 20 passengers, all men, all going to Washington, D.C., and I got on, and we didn't, we stood in the front, I stood in the front of the plane to do the pre-flight. And I don't think they had microphones or anything, because we had to scream it out. <laughs> I love it. The news for the death, you know. <laughs> it's going to rain. <laughs> oh, God, I was standing there screaming out our pre-flight, and I said, and the captain's name is Captain So-and-so, and the first officer is something. This was on April 1st, 1955, and my name is Miss April. And they roared, honey, that's my maiden name. And they said, oh, you got to be kidding, April Fool. And I said, no, you sound like a fun bunch. 
we're going to have a good time. Then I went and opened the liquor cabinet box and started selling booze at 7.30 in the morning. Out of Simpson, out of, um, I was based in, where the hell was I? You know, I'm, I had, yeah, based in Kansas City, going from Kansas City to Washington, D.C. Now, you know, in those days, there was some states that you flew over that you couldn't serve alcohol over the state. I mean, there was something, they didn't do that, in other words. And so I sold all this booze, and these guys were having a wonderful time, and I did too. And I said, see, that booze was supposed to be sold on the next leg of the trip. And so they had to refuel in Washington, D.C., and I got off, and the captain and the co-pilot took me out to dinner that night in Baltimore, because I love raw oysters, and they, the captain said, young lady, he said, uh, I really, uh, you, you really are going to make a good airline hostess. He said, you see, TWA doesn't hire for looks, but you've got a good personality. He said, let me tell you something, though. If I ever, ever hear, and I will be following your behavior, if I ever hear of conduct like we experienced this morning on that flight, you were drunk. He says, you will be fired immediately. I was 19 years old, and a job was threatened by my behavior as a direct result of drinking alcohol. And you know what I thought? You old 40-year-old bastard, what do you know about having fun? Did not cross my mind that maybe alcohol could be a problem. Well, I stayed away long enough for him to miss me and for my friends to tell him how much he missed me. And so he called me and said, okay, you win. We'll do it your way. I'll sign anything. Uh, you'll, we'll be married in church. We'll just do the whole nine yards. Just come home. And I, and I did, you know, I thought, God, how fast can I get there? And we got there, and I had about two months or three months to plan the wedding, and we had to go through pre-cana counseling and all like that. And, and he did it, I remember he did it with his sunglasses on, so the priest couldn't see that he was sleeping. And, uh, and of course, you know, I have been, you know, I, I know the catechism, and so I had to go with him also. And the night before our wedding, he said, You know, Val, there's not going to be any religion in our home. And you know what I said? Whatever you say. Whatever you say. I'm sure when my biography is written, it's going to be entitled, How to Succeed Though Born Shallow. <laughs> Where were my convictions? Where were my convictions? They weren't there. I had no love of God. I really had no love of God. I had a terrible, terrible fear of the wrath of God. Now, I do not say that that religion taught that to me. That's ridiculous. I had the fear. And so I had a great anger with God. I was furious with him for making me different. Van. And no matter where I was, I was different 
understand. So we had this wonderful marriage and we rocked along in this uh, for six years. First six years I was a perfect mother. And then we had our first child. Uh, I could tell anybody how to raise children, flowers, dogs, plants. I was an expert. He was from a really lovely, educated, sophisticated family. Oh, I loved it. Oh, I loved it. And to this day, I love his family. To this day, I love him. He's the father of my children. Indeed, I do. And by love, I mean I wish him the best. I wish for him what I wish for me, the best. I wish for him what God wants me to have, the best. And that's how I love. But uh, we rocked along in that marriage and we, oh God, he was at Tulane and we lived in the French Quarter and and if you, we didn't live in the Quonset hut like the other GI Bill students or anything. Yes, he was a, a Korean veteran. He was seven years older than I was. He was a man. I had been going out with boys. He was 27 years old and a veteran of Korea. Uh, he spent his whole time in Biloxi, but uh, we had no Koreans on the Gulf Coast, so he must have done a good job. Um, they never invaded New Orleans. <laughs> he went back. He was on the GI Bill, and he had two years to finish school. And so, you know, naturally, I quit that job, come home, get married, and get on with this, being the wife of an almost professional man. And then when he graduates, and when we get a job, and when, and when... Where were my nouns? I had no nouns. Everything was going to happen out there. Everything was going to happen when we had a car, a new car, when we had a house, when we had another house, <laughs> when we had another car, when we had a boat, when we had another boat, when we had a baby, when we had another baby. That's all, all that was going to happen. And through all of that, I drank. Now, I was not a daily drinker. In the beginning, I was uh, a weekend drinker. We couldn't afford booze, as a matter of fact. And uh, so we drank OPs, uh, which is a brand called Other People's. And but we were very cute, and we were attractive, and we lived in the Bucare, and there were older people there, more successful people. There was a uh, there was a hotel owner and a travel agent that we went with and a, and a state of Louisiana Supreme Court justice and, and um, writers and all kinds of exciting people. I mean, I do not lie to you when I say there was some fun in the drinking that we had. There really was. But I always got drunk. I always got drunk. I can remember one Mardi Gras. They told me to dress like this, folks, even though it is a week late. They said, dress Western down. My mom would be proud of this costume, I tell you. Mardi Gras was last week, though. But there was one Mardi Gras, and there were four of us, and we were the Wizard of Oz group. Ah, uh, let's see. The Scarecrow is here tonight. I was Dorothy. 
and we had the cowardly lion and uh, the, our two husbands. Um, we had the cowardly lion and the uh, tin man. We had one catastrophe with the tin man because we had taken starched khakis and sprayed them silver, but we sprayed the fly too. Uh, we had to have the perfect cones, since these were two engineers, and they had to make the perfect cone for the head. And then we decided to be really cute, and we found an oil can, and it held a fifth of bourbon. It was a nice oil can. It was a real oil can. And so, being Dorothy, I had a basket, and I carried the oil can for the tin man and we could go find ice trucks and just go ship there's ice trucks all over you know this is a long time ago people and we, we could ship the ice and make our own little bourbon and water in the morning so we were chipping ice and we had our ice and then we squirted out our bourbon oil cans are lined with rubber or something oil cans Alcohol is a solvent. <laughs> Alcohol will remove rubber from oil cans. Yes. Alcohol will remove pain. Alcohol will remove health, love, family, position. Alcohol is a solvent. And so, yes it will, won't it? It'll take it all away. It'll take it all away. And yet we thought it was our best friend. It was my best friend. I didn't think it. I knew it. It was my best friend. It was the only thing that made me equal to. The only thing that made me equal to. Where I could get some comfort. And you know, hell, I don't, I don't know why or, or, you know, I don't, I drank because I was alcoholic, okay? And that's the deal for me. I don't care, and most cadavers do not care what the autopsy shows. I mean, that's the last one that cares. All I'm so grateful for is I know that I have alcoholism. I will die with my alcoholism. If I continue to do what I've been doing for the past 15 years, I will not die of my alcoholism. And that's the main thing that I have today. Uh, we rocked along in that marriage for 18 years. We were married six years, and we had our first daughter. We were married 12 years, and we had our second daughter. We were married 18 years, and we had our first divorce. Uh, it was very, you know, absolute abstinence will guarantee no more children. And it's a good form of birth control. So is marriage. <laughs> I'm convinced. Uh, I was married to him for 18 years. That man was good to me for 18 years. Uh, you know, we say in our program that, that we are sometimes people pleasers. I'm going to give you a little clue as to what kind of a people pleaser I was. When I was in college, I was president of Students for Stevenson. Now that's Adelaide Stevenson, and that's the old Adelaide Stevenson. That is not his son. I moved to Dallas into the 056 code, 
and I became Goldwater's Wednesday headquarter lady. <laughs> Whatever you wanted me to be. There were more Republicans in the old five zip code. I'd be whatever you wanted me to be. It was easier, and it made me fit in. Uh, our marriage was based on materialistic things. That's all. You know, I went from putting down, uh, going into the hospital when I was 16 years old for an appendectomy, where it had church preference. I put devout Roman Catholic uh, to raising my children to the fact that uh, their church preference was red brick. Uh, and doesn't that sound sophisticated? I thought it was. I really did. I'll tell you what I did, though, when I had those kids. I did check them out down at Holy Trinity and get them all baptized and get their name on a list just in case it proves that the one who church, my kids have tickets down there and with their name on them, they can use them anytime they want to. We were, we believed, we believed only in things and fun and parties and power and positions and prestige. And we started getting, not our position of prestige, we started getting a good salary. And that was nice because I had been a poor girl. And I was the wife. No, I wasn't the wife. He wasn't my husband. He was my identity. I signed my check, Mrs. L.M. Sirhan. There was no doubt, Sirhan. She, she wasn't there. She just wasn't there. I became a daily drinker, and then I became a daily drunk. My group in uh, the Dallas, uh, in Dallas AA says, if, some old timers do, if you don't remember your last drunk, maybe you haven't had it yet. Not your last drink. Your last drink may have been the most important drink in the world. It may have been the one that let you live long enough to get here so we could love you better. That could have been that one. But your last drunk was no fun. Now I'm going to tell you about my last drunk. And there's some, there is a woman I know for sure in this room who was there when I had it. It was October the 31st. 1972, and that's Halloween, even in Highland Park, Dallas, Texas. Uh, our school system, of which I had been a member of the PTA board, uh, you know, we did, I just didn't sit at home and drink all day. I went out drunk. <laughs> and so I was, I had been on the PTA board and being you know, having such a keen analytical mind and being so clever, I did make the suggestion at one of the meetings, which was always at nine o'clock in the morning, of why didn't we just have mugs because these damn cups jiggled so much. And that was my contribution to the PPA board. Um, I didn't like long on that, but I had been elected. And um, on Halloween, uh, our school 
kids a carnival. I think they don't want our kids out begging, I don't know. I never ask them, but they give a carnival. I'm going to tell you what that day was like, and you can just back it up maybe for a couple of years, and, this, and that's my drunk log. By that time we had our own business, uh, the phone would ring at 7 o'clock in the morning. It would be him who had gone to the business to get the carpenters out on the job, and my older daughter, who was then 10, answered, yeah, she's up, she's throwing up. So, well, other women jog, I do throw up. <laughs> yeah, Amy's up. Yeah, I'm getting a dress. Yeah, we'll get to school, Daddy, don't worry. And I would get my beer, and I went in, I got my beer, and I got my cigarette, and I got in my bed, and I shook. Oh, I shook, I shook. And I'd get that beer down and run to the bathroom, and it would come up, and then go get the other beer, and that one stayed down. I was in the bed with the cigarette, and the four-year-old came in. Uh, I didn't, I did not abuse my children. I did not hit my children. I had been hit growing up. I had been hit a lot. I was raised by the sister servants of perpetual revenge. And I had been hit a lot. And I did not hit my children. And I was sitting in the bed. Oh, God, never forget it. I, I wish I had a blackout then. I really do. Blackouts have their place in my life, thank God. And I was sm smoking a cigarette, and my little four-year-old came in. She said, Mommy, why do you shake so? And I said, because you make me nervous. You make me nervous. That's child abuse. <laughs> That's child abuse. For four years old. So that day, I did my usual. I, I drank until I got beard out, which was usually around 9 o'clock, and then I took a nap, sometimes inappropriately under the breakfast room table, but I needed my rest. And I take my little nap. I always woke up at 5 minutes to 11 because I needed intellectual stimulation and uh, Jeopardy came on then. That's serious. You think I'm kidding. I'm, that's it. That was my, that and reading matchbook covers were about, you know, that was, that was where this wonderful fine mind had gone, had taken me. That's where booze took me. Um, then I would fix myself lunch. Great big glass of bourbon and water with a slice of lemon on the top. It looked like iced tea. It didn't smell like iced tea. And iced tea doesn't usually make you drool or lose your teeth. And ask your dog, Pepper, do you know where mommy's teeth are? Icy doesn't do that. 
but sometimes he would come home for lunch, and maybe he would think I was having iced tea. I would have my bourbon. By this time, vodka had been removed from our house because vodka made me mean. Bourbon made me very sweet. Um, all my credit cards had been removed. My checkbook had been removed. Uh, I still had car keys uh, in which I would put my, um, they called them models, coats, their robes. I put my drinking robe on and my wig and go over to his office, which would, could be filled with architects, and say, I have come for my pittance for your children. <laughs> and then I would get my pittance and go to the liquor store. It, it usually wasn't necessary for me to go to the liquor store, so help me God, till the day that man put me away, he would call me every day and say, Phoebe, is there anything I can get you? And I'd say, yeah, you're out of beer. Um, in, in case uh, some friends come by, you better bring some bourbon, too. And if it were Mother's Day or Christmas, I'd ask for vodka. But uh, that was just special. And uh, I didn't want to push on on Halloween, you know, I wasn't going to push my luck because Thanksgiving was coming and, God, maybe then. Um, he, uh, I would, uh, okay, so that was that afternoon. I got my pittance, I got my bourbon, I saw my Jeopardy, I went back to bed. Because that evening, that afternoon, we were going to the birthday party of a four-year-old friend of my daughter's, and I don't know how you all give birthday parties, but our birthday parties were one birth, first birthday, one child, three cases of vodka. The second birthday, two children, four cases of champagne. I mean, you know, that, good Lord, you don't know the, the cake and candy and all that crap around, do you? I guess you're sick. Um, so that night, uh, we were going there, and then we were going to school. And we went to Helene's party for Liesl. And I had, I had a dress on. Uh, it was a lovely dress. It covered my liver where I could hold a can of beer. It would stand up. It would just stand up right on my liver. Put my little wig on. I weighed 165 pounds. And uh, we went out like the goddamn Walton. I mean, all mommy and daddy and two little children, and I just thought we were precious. And we went to the party, and I've got a picture of my two children in the front of my big book of that night, of my two precious children. And, of course, I drank everything she had in the house, and he said, I think I better take you home instead of taking you to school. And I said, uh, oh no, uh, I've been on the PTA board. Uh, I know how those teachers are if parents don't show up at every function. They take it out on the kids. And I am going. Now there are some, well see there aren't some of you. I can't say that because this is not an open meeting. There are some of them who live with us, who think 
that ours is a willpower problem. Tell you a little bit about willpower. All right, so I weighed 165 pounds. He weighed 190 pounds. He was six foot tall, and he was second generation Nazi. And he said, I don't think you ought to go to school. And I said, we are going to school. Now guess where we went. School days. Hell no, home. We went to school where I belong. I'm the mother of these kids. Of course we went to school. Who had the willpower? Who has the... What is, alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. In you or in me, it is cunning, baffling, and powerful. So we went to that school, into the cafeteria. The Boy Scouts' mothers make chicken and spaghetti, and they sell it that night, and so, you know, families come and eat there. That's very nice. And so we, we walked in. He says, I'll take you home so you can scare the neighborhood children. That wasn't nice. That wasn't nice. And so we walk into school, and in this auditorium, the first thing I did was trip over a Boy Scout. I don't know what he was doing on the floor. He shouldn't have been there. He should have known better. And he grabbed me, and he sat me down at the table, and he said, you need something to eat. That's it. You need... He said, you probably haven't eaten all day. Well, for God's sake, I had an olive. I was full. I didn't need anything to eat. They like to feed us when we're drunk, don't they? They just love to feed us. They feed us coffee, and they've got wide awake drunk. They feed us food, and we get to throw up more. And it's really exciting, feeding a drunk. Maybe that's their favorite indoor sport. You know, let's feed the drunk. <laughs> so he put this plate of spaghetti and chicken in front of me on the table. And I proceeded to pass out with my face in that plate of spaghetti. When I came into AA, y'all talked about high bottoms and low bottoms. What in the world are they talking about? Let me tell you, for a woman raised the way I was raised, with the background, the education, the qualities that had been instilled in me, to be a wife and a mother, to be there, passed out in front of your children, is the lowest bottom I ever want reach. Now I can have another bottom. It's out there for me. Plug out of the jug. And believe me, I know I can have another bottom. And I hope I die. I never want to live like that again. Do you? Hell no. You don't want to live like that again. Uh-uh. I really would like to say but I just sat up and washed my face and said, leave me to AA. <laughs> Not this kid, no way. But he did. He checked on November 1st, and on November 2nd, he found a hospital. 
the hospital was called Center. It was called Convalescent Center. This was in 1972. It was called the Convalescent Center. There were seven floors, six floors of senile and one floor of drunks. The senile hated us. When we were in the, oh, they just hated us. Uh, well, because we would do things like get a drunk hired in the kitchen so we could get some damn bell pepper in the meatloaf. And those poor old people would just be so gassy and they hated it. It's just awful. It's just awful. We were on the sixth floor of this hospital. And let me tell you what the only, the only modality of treatment there was offered to us. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and the drunks coming to talk to us. That's all. That is all we had. The 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And we had each other and that's it. And we sobered up a bunch of us. We really did. And I hated it. I hated AA. I thought, you know, when I went to college, there was a girl whose father was the uh, head of what was then called the Leprosorium in Carville, Louisiana. It's the only uh, colony, leper colony, or colony for Hansen's disease in the, uh, in the states, in the United States, this one in Hawaii, but on the uh, continent. And her father was the head doctor there, and she got married there. And I was one of her sorority sisters, and we were all invited. And so I got to go on a lecture to the leper colony. I felt more comfortable in Carville than I did in this place, than a hospital. He took me there. He told me he was going to divorce me if I didn't go, and he was going to take my house and take my kids and never see me again and he says now thou what do you think what do you want and I said another drink are you going to fix it or am I and that's all I wanted that is all I wanted but I went into that hospital and I stayed the 28 days and on the 28th day oh god I, well let me tell you some experiences in that hospital in the first place, the people there were mostly old men. I have never seen so much plaid polyester pants in my whole life. I have never seen so many black shoes and white socks in my life. Their grammar was atrocious. And they were going to tell me how to live. And they talked about God. And I am registered in that hospital as an atheist. And I am furious when I find that out. I said, this is ridiculous. I have an aunt who's a nun and a mother who's a saint. I am not an atheist. I am, and they said, well, agnostic. I said, indeed not. I am an apostate. Do you know how to spell it? Not too arrogant. Not too arrogant. I hated it. I thought the steps were stupid. I thought the big book was stupid. I mean, anybody who couldn't read it in a half an hour was illiterate. And it, 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 
I went through it in 40 minutes and found all the, uh, what the, oh God, the pronouns that did not match the verb and the split infinitives and dangling participles and, and there were just a couple in there, but I could find them. And it was, it said, this is a simplistic program. I thought, oh God, are you right? <laughs> I hated it and I hated all the God talk. I was so terrified of the God talk. On the day that I left the hospital, I said, I'm so glad you all are here and so glad that you all had meetings here while I was here. And if I ever need you, I'll come back. I left at noon, this was on a Friday. Our one meeting was at 8 o'clock that night. I was back at 7.30, I took my seat, and I've been there for 15 years. You bet. Nobody's getting me out of that seat. No way, no how. And I don't know why I went back, other than it was the last last house on the block. There wasn't anybody out there who understood me. All of my friends were still drinking. I hated them. I hated the people who weren't drinking. I hated my children. I hated myself. It was horrible. But I'll tell you what I did. I got active in AA, okay? I used to go around doing the traditions at different clubs. I loved the tradition. I thought that, I loved the history book. I loved AA Comes of Age. I like all that stuff. I couldn't find too much God stuff that would scare me off in that. After 14 months of sobriety, this man who had tolerated and had never raised a hand to me, or even his voice to me, 14 months of sobriety, on the day after Christmas, he said, I want a divorce. I don't like you sober. You're boring. Now, how can somebody who doesn't like housework and doesn't like dirty pots, who puts her dirty pots in the dryer because she doesn't like to see them, doesn't like to put the garbage out so she puts it in the freezer so it won't smell, now, isn't that someone exciting to live with? I don't think that's boring, but obviously he did. He filed for divorce. I could not believe it. I could, nobody could believe it, and that's the truth. It was unbelievable that this marriage was over after 14, 18 years and 14 months of sobriety. I called my sponsor. I said, Billy, what am I going to do? And she said, well, Val, she said, oh, quiet, gentle woman. And she said, you might try working the steps. Oh, God, you know, that was almost as bad as don't take the first drink. I mean, have you ever heard anything more ridiculous? I mean, the horrible part is I couldn't not do that, though, and that's what made me mad. She said, why don't we try the steps? Now, I'm not going to tell you that I let that husband go without a fight. I wasn't that sober. 
I guarantee you I fought tooth and nail, and for six months I was fighting for heirloom Tupperware. Uh, we had nothing. He was going bankrupt. I called my sponsor. I said, he's taking the kids. He's a professional. He can support them. He's going to take my girls. And she says, not if you don't let him. And I said, oh, but Billy, my education was a classical education. Uh, cosmology, epistemology, theology, philosophy, English literature. She says, no typing a shorthand, huh, honey? No, no typing a shorthand. I said, Billy, I can, I can do two things. I can mud wrestle or be a ward of the state. She says, get your leotards or get your application, one or the other. If you want to keep those girls, if not, you can still stay sober. You can still stay sober. I went out and I got a job, 38 years old, as an office girl. <laughs> I was office girl to the president of the company. In typical alcoholic fashion, within four years I was vice president of the company, within six years I was on their board of directors. I mean, we do that. We make damn good employees. You know why? We show up. Uh-huh. We food up and we show up. Sometimes we shut up, too. During that time, you know, I found a God of my own understanding that is so beautiful that I, I really I had to write down and I did this one night and it, it, it's so basic but I, I just want to share it with you it just says the God that I know would say to a person who's striving like I was and had been taught to earn his love to be worthy of his love this God would just say, you have it all backwards, darling. You're trying to change so that you can win my love. It just doesn't and can't work that way. I have given you my love so that you can change. If you accept my love as a gift, it will enable you to grow. You need to know that I love you whether you do your best or not, so that then you will have the strength of my love to do your best. Isn't that a fun God? I, I share him with you because you shared yours with me. You said, look in the mind. I told my sponsor, said, Billy, I don't understand this God crap. I know, you know, you want to do, you want to do St. Thomas, Aquinas, Summa Theologica, and Latin and English, I can do it. I just don't understand this God crap. She said, Sal, the most important thing for you to remember about God is you ain't it. And you know from there it got simpler and simpler. And let me tell you what the God of my understanding put into my life. I, I really was devastated about that divorce. As I said, he was my identity. I was Mrs. Somebody. 
He sent me a Texas oil man. Anybody here from Oklahoma and Texas? They know what Texas oil men are now, right? There is a wonderful story that goes, there's this frog and he hops out and he says, kiss me, kiss me, I am really a Texas oil man. And she picks him up and puts him in her pocket. And her friend says, why don't you kiss him? He is a Texas oil man. She says, I can make more money with a talking frog than a Texas oil man. <laughs> I have been going with this Texas oil man for 14 years. We have been going hand in hand to AA meetings. I have had the privilege of going to an international meeting in Denver with him, to the international meeting in my own beautiful city of New Orleans in 1980, and to the international convention in Montreal in 1985 where 50,000 of us drunks experienced the moment of silence. That's what I got out of this program. He gives me diamonds and he gives me emeralds and he gives my daughters and I Rolexes and I say the Lord's Prayer with him after every day. <laughs> Isn't that heaven? But recently I have tried kissing him all over so that I could have a talking frog who <laughs> could stop the big book and the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts and then I'll be president of AA. Won't that be fun? <laughs> he is, and those who know him know, that he is a solid, sterling member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we have had this beautiful, beautiful relationship based on love, based on respect, based on the program, and based on the fact that he lives in Carrollton and I live in Highland Park. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> he is one beautiful man. See, God provided for my needs. I guarantee you, girls, whatever you need, I know it, I know it, I know it. As they told me when I came in, if you don't believe me, just believe that I believe what I'm saying. And that has been proven to me. God has provided all of my needs. I have those two girls. I have a beautiful, beautiful young son-in-law, and the Olympics are on now. My son-in-law is a member of the United States yachting team, Olympic team. I have an unemployed yachtsman for a son-in-law. He is gorgeous. He is wonderful, and he is very lucky. If he wins in Israel next month, then he's going to get to go to Tucson, Korea. Is that not lucky? But every time I have two children who are self-supporting by their own contributions. Is that not marvelous? 
Uh, I have you. I have you. Every time, you know, with the with the Olympics being on, every time I speak, all I can imagine is everybody pulling a sign out from under their chair saying, 2.0, I have a good time with AA. Does it show? I hope so. I really do. AA, I, I spoke one time in Crested Butte, and the guy did, who was going to introduce me didn't know me, and he said, Val, what do you do? And I said, oh, I do AA. <laughs> I do it the best of my ability. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me everything, everything that I need. I love this program with all of my heart, just like I love you. Today, I received my flowers from my friends. And you know what? When you feel that love, then it gives you the ability to give it back. And that's what you've given me, is the ability to love. Had I written a list of things that I wanted from the God of my understanding in the exchange for my sobriety that I was going to give to him, I would have shortchanged myself by about 2,000%. There are things I would never have on that list. Let me tell you, my little Amy, she was sick one time, she was about eight years old. I was rocking her and singing. You, you hear this voice, don't you? And I'm rocking and singing, and she looks up with the fevered eyes and says, Rock, Mommy, don't sing. <laughs> and then she looks at me, and she says, I love every wrinkle in your eyelids. <laughs> now, that one cost me two grand. But I wouldn't have had it on my list. I wouldn't have had it on my list. When my older daughter was 16 years old and we were going to an open house at school and I made all the promises that one makes to a 16-year-old, no, I will not laugh too loud, and yes, I will walk 16 paces behind you, no, I will not wear a name tag if you don't want me to. Uh, I said, what do you want me to wear? You know, and I opened the closet and that time pants is were in, as, and I said, and I had a couple of nice pantsuits, and I said, you know, what do you want me to wear? And she, she said, uh, wear a skirt. Maybe the guys will think someday I'm going to have good-looking legs. Sixty, ah, oh, would you have had that on your list? Hell no, uh-uh. No way, no way. I'm a lucky woman. I am a very, very lucky woman. I usually end my talk with a, a quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's from Mere Christianity. And he says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks, and so on. Now, you knew these jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. 
He's throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. He's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. In the words of Bill Wilson in his last letter to us, he said, I thank you for your lives. I thank you for your lives. And thank you for having me. I love you, love you, love you. <laughs>